Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. We have an interesting guest today. Usually we bring in journalists or storytellers, but this guest is here because of an article he wrote about storytelling for the Harvard Business Review. The title, Why Your Brain Loves Good Storytelling. He is a professor at Claremont Graduate University. He's given a TED Talk and he's been in numerous publications. Dr. Paul J. Zak, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. Now, Paul, I'll give you the floor here to start because uh, you did some pretty nifty neurological work here in this story. Why do our brains love good storytelling, and what are you defining as good storytelling? Yeah, two great questions. So the answer to the first is that we are social creatures, and stories almost always have a social component. 99.99% of them do, and when they have a social component, our kind of hyperactive social brain kicks in and it's just like you've met someone fascinating, someone interesting, and you can't wait to spend time with that character. Our brain sees it as if it's a real person right in front of you. So it's our social nature that leads us to storytelling. Um, how do we know a good story from bad? Um, there's two ways. One is through actions, right? So we don't want to rely on self-report. Oh, I like this story or I like this ad or I like this, uh, this movie trailer. What we do is we measure whether that story affected the way you behave afterwards. I can tell you how we do that. So we get some kind of you know, action, usually a costly action, a difficult action. And second, we have developed a, ways, uh, a number of ways to measure brain activity um, up to a thousand times a second that assesses whether you are getting deeply engaged in the story. And so we can actually watch your brain activity as the story evolves and we can tell filmmakers or people creating commercials or uh, corporate communications, here's where you lose them or here's where you grab them, basically. Mm. So what is that good storytelling? Is it as simple as good storytelling equals compelling characters or is there more to it? There's a little more to it. So uh, I have to give you a, a 60 seconds of neuroscience background. Please. So um, like it or not, we all have lazy Republican brains. So your brain is a lazy Republican because it's conservative. It takes about 20% of the calories that you take in to run your brain. It's only 3% of body mass. So it's a super expensive organ to run, and it is designed to conserve energy. So that's why it tries to idle most of the time, and that means capturing your attention is difficult. So I've got to do something as a storyteller first to grab your attention because you know what? I could just space out, or I could just look around and see if there's anything else more interesting in my environment. Um, so the second part of this uh, lazy Republican brain is the lazy part. And the brain's lazy because instead of creating new brain systems for our modern environment, it reuses systems that evolved eons ago for one purpose for our current life. And so part of that is uh, an area that processes social information. And this area originally evolved in mammals to help us care for our offspring and form bonds with our romantic partners and friends. And it turns out that stories can engage that nurturing part of the brain, that connection part. So, so that's the backstory. So what mm. I have to do if I'm a storyteller? Number one, I got to get your attention. And we found now in, in, in a variety of uh, published studies we've done that it 
it uh, happens in about 20 seconds. If you don't get my attention in about 20 seconds, uh, then you're going to have a much harder time. So we think of sort of the classical novels, you know, sort of, I don't know, uh, 19th century British novels, as this kind of long intro, you know, something that Jane Austen's doing. And for most people, they don't want to stick with it that long, right? We have laser Republican brains, and we want to get to it right away. My brain's going to be bored. Well, and when, second, you, when you talk about 20 seconds, are you referring to watching a video, reading an article? Is it across the board? Beautiful. So uh, generally, we use videos. We've done audio work as well. Uh, for print, actually, it's a little different. So uh, print, you actually have a longer period of time because people's expectation is that it's going to take a little while for me to get through a page or two of text. But um, we find that print stories that begin uh, with a sort of a hot open write a really good first paragraph, people stay engaged much longer. So two things can happen. So I have, I have a kind of a slow open, and either you kind of grab me, or it's a slow open and I just space out and I don't get it, right? So I think this says that that first paragraph and even the title are great signals that something exciting is going to happen here. And in this kind of lazy brain world, if something's not happening, eh, I have other things I can do with my attention. So attention's the first part. Go ahead. You want to follow up, and then we'll do the second part. Yeah, so you get that 20 seconds, and does it matter necessarily how you capture the attention? Does it need to be a character? Does it need to be, uh, you know, a, a compelling sentence or a whiz-bang piece of video? What, uh, what is the key there, or is there a key there? Uh, so far, we haven't found many differentiators. So you're asking exactly the right writing uh, perspective. And we haven't actually dissected that first paragraph enough. We've, we've done probably, um, neurologically, we've studied probably uh, a couple of dozen stories, maybe 30. So we don't have enough writing now to tell you this is yeah. the best opening paragraph. But we find is after about 20 seconds, if there's not some kind of character development, that I don't start building the ties with the characters in the story. So if I'm going to use the first paragraph just to describe the space I'm in or the outdoors or whatever, you know, I, the, the reader or, or viewer will give you a little leeway, but at some point the human's got to enter and there's got to be enough tension to keep my attention. So if you think of this sort of classic dramatic arc or Freytag triangle, right, this kind of developing tension. And the reason for that is because sadly you have a laser Republican brain. And if you don't <laughs> sustain this attention, then, you know, the story is going to start to fall flat. So, you know, many writers know this, right? The, the story starts great and ends great and then sags in the middle. So um, we can talk a little about how to work against the middle sag. And actually, the neuroscience is sort of surprising on that. But, yeah, starting strong, having characters develop right away and characters with some tension. Because, again, that even though we avoid tension in our daily lives, we love tension when it comes to a story. So you've got me hooked 20 seconds in. Then what? Then I need to start caring about this character. So I've got to actually put some flesh on the bones. So once I have that character in some situation of peril or in some uh, crisis or who, uh, a, a character who is desiring something that we ourselves might desire, I wish I hadn't broke up with my uh, darling girlfriend. I wish I could see my child again, but now I'm stuck in a Turkish prison prison for selling heroin or whatever. So now I have a tension, right? Actually, that statement had two tensions. I have, I'm stuck in a prison, and I can't see my loved ones, right? So now I'm like, okay, what are you doing in prison? How'd you get here, right? So I'm actually building in hooks so that I want to keep turning the page or watching the video. 
And again, what we see is that if there's not this growing tension, if this, so we've created stories that are just flat. So they open fine, things are happening, you're attending to it, and then it's just this you know, linear story. It doesn't actually have a story arc. And after about 20 or 30 seconds, you can just see the neurologic data. The brain is just kind of disengaging. And so it's, uh, in particular, if I want to be persuasive, if I want to encourage you to behave in some certain way after the story ends, I need to sustain attention, capture attention, sustain attention, and have this character development where in this lazy Republican brain world, what the characters are doing, we as herd creatures implicitly understand, oh, apparently the humans are now taking care of stray dogs. That's what I see in my story. So I have a period of time, uh, we've measured up to a week afterwards, in which we become predisposed to doing what we see in the story. So this is the example of if you watch like the movie 300 or something, right? Oh, I'm going to work out like crazy. I love this, right? And after a week, it wears off. Okay, I'm over <laughs> that now. Right? But we do, I think as, as writers and storytellers, we have an amazing opportunity to actually not only influence the way people feel and think, but in fact how they behave. And so um, some of the individuals that we've, uh, I, I've been really privileged to work with are like documentary filmmakers who are writing stories and producing stories that have to do with things in our environment that we should really care about, uh, sexual exploitation, the environment, whatever that is, we need an effective story to motivate us to get off our lazy butts and go do something. Right. Uh, and and the, the theme seems to be that uh, humans are inherently lazy and, uh, and conservative. I don't know if Republican in, 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 in all facets, but maybe just the general conservative term. Right. So, uh, you know, one, one key of storytelling, which I use when I teach, is if you piss people off, they'll remember things. So I, <laughs> I invented the lazy Republican brain phrase because it worked great when I teach my neuroscience classes. Um, of course, you know, your brain was, is uh, different. But what it tries to capture is that from a, from a storyteller's perspective, attention is an extraordinarily scarce resource. It's like, you know, running your car at 90 miles an hour. Uh, you can do it, but you got to have a really good reason, and so, uh, or maybe at 60 miles an hour. So, you know, there's got to be a reason for you to go that fast. And uh, what I sort of foreshadowed earlier, and if I could follow up now, is it turns out that the sort of classic freight-type triangle, building tension, building tension, building tension, linearly, doesn't work in the brain. We actually need little dips, little breathers, that it's so cognitively costly to sustain attention this is why good storytellers often will build in, if it's a long enough story, two or three storylines. If the story's short, so 30 seconds, 60 seconds, ah, one storyline is great. But if you're going to develop this as a longer piece, then oftentimes you want to bring in another character who's got an a intersecting storyline. Maybe not intersecting at first, maybe just another storyline or things like comic relief, right? So we need a little break from this, oh, he's still in prison. He can't get out. Ugh. Okay, I got it. But now we come in with the court jester or we come in with uh, the wife of the guy who's in prison who doesn't know where he is. And so now she's confused and what's happening. And gosh, I think he was having an affair. and Maybe he left me for his other girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I can build in these storylines, have them have a little bit of life and then pick up the second storyline or even the third storyline and then create this layering where at the end, you know, if you're a good writer, all those storylines weave into this beautiful fabric which resolves all of the issues our characters are facing. That's a really interesting, and I think a very good point to make for a lot of long-form storytellers in journalism, too, just that weaving in 
uh, you obviously have your main focus, but weaving in just additional characters, additional complexities in a way that advances the story, but also kind of like you said, gives you that up and down, that kind of uh, the, the waves, if you will, of emotion and story. Yeah, and I think, you know, junior writers are, are not as good as this, but when you see it done, particularly long form, it is just gorgeous to go through, both as a reader and as a writer, to go through and dissect, gosh, that was really good, right? So three pages in, he or she brought in this new character. The new character has a different storyline and is going a different place, will interact with my character. Um, and it, it can be done in so many different ways. I think um, one of my favorite examples from the movies is the movie um, Memento. Memento. Oh, right. Just, just, yeah, Christopher yeah, Nolan. Yeah, Christopher Nolan and Guy Pearce starred in it. And uh, we're going to ruin it now, but basically the movie runs <laughs> reverse. And actually, even neurologically, that is the best depiction I've ever seen of someone who has um, uh, you know, severe uh, short-term memory problems. Um, so these patients are exactly like that. They have about a minute or so, minute and a half, where they can remember something, and then it's gone. And uh, so it was depicted very well. But even that story running in reverse had a story arc. There was building tension. There was a couple different storylines that came in. And so it works, you know, if, if it's an arc, it works forward and works backwards. And in that movie, too, you could also argue that, you know, be, because the, the movie kept resetting, it gave everyone a chance to kind of have to refocus a little bit, which is that up and down that you were talking about. Th that's very good. So, yeah, that's almost a, a classic example of that. And I'm sure we could pull from movies and literature other ways. Yeah. But I do think that this sort of 10,000-word, you know, 8,000-word long-form uh, you know, magazine article is, in my view, perhaps the hardest to write. If, you, if you're novel length or book length, you actually have a lot of freedom to bring in other things, to weave them together, pick it up three chapters later. But I think the sort of eight to 10,000 words is really tough. It, it's tough for me, uh, and, uh, you know, but I'm a junior guy. But you know, I think for, even for serious writers, long-form is, is just a beautiful thing when it's done well. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Dr. Paul J. Zach, author of the article, Why Your Brain Loves Good Storytelling. And Paul, I wanted to kind of keep going in that journalism vein here. You read quite a bit of writing, I'm sure, watch a lot of news stories, and you mentioned documentaries. Where do you find the best storytelling occurring? Uh, you know, that's almost an unfair question because you become ruined uh, when you spend so much of your life, so I spent, you know, uh, eight or nine years of my professional life studying uh, the neurobiology of, of narratives. And um, so I have my particular favorites, but um, I think The New Yorker and The Atlantic are both fabulous places. Um, I, I do think Hollywood movies are fabulous. Um, I, I don't have much of an appetite for the very short form stuff anymore because I want to be engaged more fully. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, uh, you know, it's it certainly is a truism, Matt, that you know you you have to read a lot to write a lot well, and um, the more I you know write popular books and the more I write, it just requires that I read better and better literature. Um, sadly, I don't read a lot of fiction, and and I know fiction is really really important, and fiction is almost a separate realm which we could talk about as well. But um, you know, I write popular science books and popular science articles, so I spend my time kind of reading that form. Right. Malcolm Gladwell, gosh, you can't go wrong. Sure. And he is a really, you know, regardless of what people think of his science and whether he backs up what he's asserting, just his ability to tell a story is 
truly phenomenal. And he does exactly what you mentioned. He always starts with that personal example leading into the universal. Um, you talk about long form a lot. I, I'm curious as to whether you feel like a lot of these storytelling techniques and, and, and you know, what you're saying about the brain, whether that applies to shorter form journalism. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, a, a quick newspaper article or a minute 30 television piece. Does it require those ebbs and flows that you referred to? Does it require everything just in a much more compact form? Have you done any work with that? We have. In fact, most of the work we've done have been very much short form, 30-second commercials, 60-second, two-minute. Uh, so we originally looked at public service announcements. So don't text and drive, don't drink and drive. And our behavioral measure for um, impact was, since we're paying you in these experiments, we're torturing you, putting electrodes on you, taking your blood, um, whether after you saw that public service announcement, whether you would donate some of the earnings that you made to a charity associated with that cause. And so this allowed us to kind of tune the neurologic algorithms so that we were really predictive of impact of that story. So you could say there are other ways of impact, but again, self-report is very difficult. These, the brain areas that are activated uh, by stories that are emotionally engaging are outside of conscious awareness. So it's very difficult to get reliable self-report on how you feel. We, we ask those questions but it's actually uh, generally not very reliable data. Hmm. So yeah, short form, you still need that little up and down. If it's 30 seconds, you'll still see this, I'm attending to it, and then a little drop off, and I attend to it again, so I, I need to still build this tension in. As a story may actually be linear, but from the brain activity, we'll still see these kind of waves. And, um, and, and if the waves dip too far down, then you, you may have lost that person. And uh, let, let's get a little bit into how exactly you have tested this, because I think it's phenomenal reading the article you talk about uh, measuring oxytocin levels, and just uh, get into a little bit of the science behind this if you can uh, do so without alienating the non-scientific uh, journalistic crowd. Uh, I can do it in, in two minutes. So when we started doing this, you know, one of our targets was this brain chemical oxytocin that my lab was the first to discover um, motivates positive social behaviors like trust and uh, generosity, charity. And so we thought, hey, maybe these movies also induce the release of oxytocin. And in fact, we just started studying stories only because we wanted a, a reliable oxytocin stimulus. So could we get, could a story make the brain make this chemical? Um, and in fact, we found it could. So we started investigating how, what kind of story, how, you know, so this is, this is sort of the origin of all this work on the neurobiology of narrative. So how do we do that? We started with blood draws. You come in, you get a blood draw, you watch a hundred second video, another blood draw, tell us how you feel, see if you want to donate money. And so we did this repeatedly, and we identified these brain chemicals that told us about your attentional response and your emotional engagement. Emotional engagement is oxytocin. It makes us feel empathy, makes us care about the characters. And then we said, attention, that's not new. Everyone knows about attention. So let's really push on the empathy part. So what if we took, which we've done in many experiments, took synthetic oxytocin and shot it into your brain? Hmm. Would you get sucked in that story more? And the answer is yes. So, <laughs> I think people... I've just heard a bunch of television executives uh, coming up with a new plan. That's right. Send me a check. I'll send you some oxytocin. <laughs> so because we want to know causally, is this causing you to, to be engaged in these stories? So in these experiments, not only do people on oxytocin uh, feel more affiliation with the characters, they cared more about the outcome of the story. They donated 50% more money to the charities involved. So it wow. affected how they felt and how they behaved. 
And then the Department of Defense came along and said, um, hey, you guys know something about story. And the military does a very poor job in general articulating our mission to foreign populations, both to soldiers and civilians. And we'd actually like to reduce conflict by being better storytellers. Um, but we're not into all this blood stuff because you can't do that in you know, some remote area. So we developed these technologies using wireless electrodes that we put on your chest and your fingers. And we can pick up the, out, out, uh, the activity coming out of your brain up to a thousand times a second. So there's a, a technical word in science for this much data. So we get uh, a terabyte of data for every 30 people we test watching stories over the course of an hour each. Mm. So 30 hours of data is a terabyte. That's a beep load of data, right? So most of this is just noise. It's your brain doing all the background stuff, making your heart run and your breathing. And we have to extract out these really faint signals that tell us about attention and emotional engagement. And from that, we build these algorithms that now can tell us with very high accuracy, not only if you're engaged in the story, mm-hmm. but whether that story was persuasive. And by that, I mean, we can predict with high accuracy, more than 80% accuracy, once you've watched the story, if you'll donate to a cause or do another costly behavior that was essentially highlighted in the story. So we're no, we know what you're going to do before you know what you're going to do, which is sort of scary. Hmm. But that's the power of good stories. Wow. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He's Dr. Paul J. Zach, who wrote the article that we've been discussing called Why Your Brain Loves Good Storytelling. And Paul, you're also, uh, and I would assume primarily, a professor uh, at Claremont Graduate uh, University out in Claremont, California. So at some point in your career, and I like to use this last section of the podcast to talk to developing storytellers, young storytellers, um, Mm -hmm. wanted to get into a little bit about how you made the transition and, and how you started dabbling in writing and writing in magazines and getting published and doing TED Talks. Uh, is that uh, just a part of becoming a professor and, and getting tenure? Is you have to do these sort of things? Or was this something you were interested in doing from the get-go? Uh, neither of those. Huh. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a big introvert, Matt. So um, I love, love nothing more than sitting in my lab for 10 hours working with blood and designing experiments and looking at data. And uh, the, the, the work we did on oxytocin facilitating trust between strangers um, got a lot of media. So it, it was really unusual, um, you know, to get these phone calls. I remember the first time I was asked to be on uh, uh, network TV, you know, these two kind of doing interviews by the phone about something, which I've done before, and then saying, okay, we want you to fly to New York today. And, uh, and, and this was for... Um, uh, ABC News and, and be on the news in the morning. Like what? <laughs> I have plans tomorrow. I can't go to New York. So, so the first thing is, uh, you know, as you certainly know, as a, as a professional journalist, the news cycles are very quick. So the first thing is, if you get a media inquiry, answer right away. Right. So that's a good thing. And then the second thing is trying to be a total doofus like I was on the air and and be able to tell a story about what you're working on. So. Um, for whatever reason, you know, I got in the Rolodex early, and um, the funny thing is, the more, uh, you know, the more I do media work and public lectures, now I really crave being on the stage. I mean, it's it's an odd thing to, so I just got back from Brazil, I was at TED Global, and I spoke wow. to 2,100 people in southern Brazil. I love it. It's just, it's great. And I'm talking about things I love, things I care about, things I've spent much of my personal life, so 
Um, part of that is learning how to tell an effective story. So to do a TED Talk, you've got to have an effective story. You've got to be able to grab people initially. Um, and so I think uh, the, the work we've done on storytelling in my lab has influenced how I've done my media inquiries, my public lectures, um, my uh, public writing. And I just got a, a magazine commission to do a, a 3,000-page article on neurobiology of storytelling. Hmm. And I spent way too much time. It's not until January. I've already spent, a, I don't know, a huge number of hours working on it. <laughs> it's so much fun. I love it, as you can tell. Yes. And, you know, I think it's the, the crafting of this is so important. Getting every sentence right, getting the right word in there. Um, I'm not ashamed to tell you. I look in the thesaurus all the time, and I try to have the sentences sound good. Um, you know, I love the polishing aspect of writing. So um, I think it's having a good story to tell, being enthusiastic about it, and then being willing to go out there and, and talk to people about it uh, in bookstores. When my, when my book, The Moral Molecule, came out a couple of years ago, yeah, I flew 100,000 miles promoting that. And I spoke sometimes to bookstores with 10 people in it. Mm-hmm. And I still gave a great talk because I love what I'm doing. And, you know, sometimes I get a couple thousand people show up in a theater or whatever. So, um, you know, one of my graduate school advisors said, you know, any paper writing is worth revising 20 times. And it's certainly true for all of us. You know, you want to have a really great product out there. So I think it's using social media. Um, I find it really painful sometimes to spend my time away from research, blogging and going on Twitter. Um, But I think it's important. I think it's important to communicate. And I think even as a you know, as a scientist and as a sort of science communicator, I've been given a wonderful platform to communicate with individuals. And that's sort of a, a you know, a, a sacred trust. And I want to make sure that I'm creating value for the for the people who are following me. Um, so, yeah, I, I my people need me. I've got to get out there on Twitter and write <laughs> some interesting stuff. And uh, uh, so building up that base of support is important. And then just writing, writing, writing. And then you, you'll say the same thing. Also hitting the delete key. Sometimes you write stuff, you love it, you come back to it a month later and you go, nah, wasn't good. Yeah. So we try to do a lot of quality control, both on scientific writing, by the way, and for popular writing. So graduate students are very uh, disturbed when they've worked on a project for six months or 12 months, write up the results, and we spend a lot of time trying to get those results in, in an interesting shape. And sometimes we say, you know what? Nothing much there. I'm sorry. You, you know, it may go in your dissertation, but this is not going to be publishable. It's, it's just not strong enough. And it's better not to publish something weak, in my view, than to publish something that's crappy and will stay with you for a long time. You have to do quality control on yourself. Yeah, I know that's something uh, certainly we face in TV all the time. You get sent out on a story and, you know, it, it may or may not pan out. It may or may not be something, but you still have to approach it with the same amount of effort and energy and enthusiasm uh, regardless of whether or not it might work. And I do think that's such a, that's, that's a thing I think people learn over time is, is the value in sunk costs, so to speak, in your work and understanding that sometimes it's the thing that you leave out that might be the right decision to make in a story. I, I completely agree. And I actually recently read uh, uh, Stephen King's wonderful book on writing, and he had a nice rule, which was for every, uh, sorry, for your, for your, uh, if you finish the first draft, right, ugly, it's all there. For the first rewrite, you should cut out at least 10% of what you've got. Mm. Well, that seems like a really nice rule, right? You're going to have a lot of stuff that doesn't work. And 
just set yourself a goal. So this thing is 50,000 words. I'm going to cut it down to 45,000. I mean, I think having those rules as writers are actually useful because it tells you what you're shooting for. And I think sometimes when you're writing, at least when I'm writing, sorry, when I'm writing, I sometimes feel like I don't know what the rules are. I don't know where I'm going. And I'm just trying to disgorge all this information in my head. And if I have a, a, a goal, maybe it's a, a word limit for a magazine article or um, you know, a goal of myself in terms of revisions and tightening up. I know it just helps me. Maybe I'm, I'm a dull person, but that's what I do. And I think, uh, you know, looking back on our conversation about storytelling and your research, I feel like there are certain rules that someone could listen to this podcast, read your work, and take away three rules to tell a good story. A, hook the person in in the first 20 seconds. B, you have to develop compelling characters either in that time or pretty shortly after to keep that attention. And then the third rule would be have those ebbs and flows. It can't just be one sustained attack of a focus. It has to have complexity and it has to have nuance built in, whether or not the viewer or reader necessarily uh, is cognizant of that right off the bat. I think that's exactly right. I think you distilled that down perfectly. And I think maybe the fourth rule is, like the title of my article uh, in the Harvard Business Review, we love it. We want stories. We want to be sucked into these worlds that we have never been in. And, um, you know, understand that even though writing can be very painful sometimes, uh, you're, you're creating an experience that most people will not ever have. A murderer, uh, a crime scene, a passionate love affair, whatever that is. And um, I think readers often will give you a lot of discretion to develop that story. So, so I think there's not one way to do it, but on the other hand, we're, you know, we're, we're back to Aristotle's poetics, right? So, I mean, you know, how far have we advanced? I'm just giving you a slightly, you know, refined version of that, but it, I think it was all there. But your version has oxytocin and that's what makes it so strong. Dr. Zach, uh, thank you so much for all the knowledge today. And uh, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Uh, maybe one more thing, um, and, and, and you know this, and all writers know this, uh, you know, anything you work on for a couple of weeks by yourself, you can convince yourself is pretty brilliant. So uh, I'm a big believer in trying it out on other people. The blog is a wonderful way to get feedback on, on things you're writing. Um, so yeah, you know, um, have that sort of, uh, as a filmmaker friend of mine calls it, have a, have a story midwife, you know, <laughs> so uh, I think it's really important to have people that you trust that will give you feedback honestly, caringly, but very constructively. You know, this works, this didn't. You hit the key part, you know, bring this forward. Uh, gosh, if you can find one person like that, I think they're, they're actually lifesavers. So, um, yeah, find a, find a buddy, form a group, uh, do something to get feedback because we are all delusional because we have, what, a lazy Republican brain. And it all comes full circle. Professor Ted Talker and Dr. Paul J. Zach, thank you so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks, Matt. Take care. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.